0: once we did encounter some challenges, because we were part of your network and because I have an investment counselor, I always felt like I had somewhere to go for an answer. Um, I always felt like I had somebody with more experience than me that I could lean on, and if Sarah didn't know the answer, she got the answer.
1: Welcome to episode 1183, 1183. This is Jason Hartman. Thanks for joining me today as I'm coming to you from Hong Kong. Probably, I'm going to call it the jewel of capitalism. And so interestingly, it is a district inside of a communist country. How unusual is that, right? (laughs) Last time I was here was about 25 years ago, and it was uh, part of the British Empire. And now it is, uh, as you all know, part of China. But uh, they've left it pretty much alone, and it is amazing. I am going to play on a future episode a little bit of a speech for you, uh, some excerpts from it, uh, by the hedge fund uh, guru Kyle Bass. And uh, it is fascinating, talks about uh, China and particularly Hong Kong and how completely overvalued the real estate market is here. Are you ready for this? I hope you're ready. Are you sitting down? As you know, we recommend that you buy properties that are anywhere between $80 and maybe up to $150 or so per square foot. That's sort of our typical thing. When we were in the midst of the Great Recession, we had good properties as low as, I know, I hate to bum you out with this, $35 per square foot. And the home that I live in, that I recently purchased in Florida, on the treasure coast of Florida, as they call it, that home, depending on whether or not you count the garage space, is either 40 or 54 times less expensive per square foot than a property in Hong Kong. Yeah, I asked you if you were ready for the per square foot price. You ready? $10,000 per square foot. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. I mean, really overpriced, insanely expensive, high-rise properties in the US might be anywhere between, oh, let's call it $700 and $1,500 per square foot. But yes, in Hong Kong, you can spend $10,000 per square foot. I know, it's on absolutely unbelievable. And The economy here is built on the Wall Street-style economy, the banking economy, and as you know, we've talked many times about the difference between Wall Street and Main Street, and how Main Street is the real economy, and Wall Street is the smoke and mirrors economy. It's the economy of financial innovation. Yeah, financial innovation. Whenever you hear that phrase, run for the hills. Because, you know, it is uh, something that is not built on reality. It's something that's built on smoke and mirrors. And Hong Kong, of course, is built on banking and financial instruments. Pretty much the Wall Street economy. Same concept, of course. And so, Kyle Bass, in his speech, and I will play some excerpts for you on a future episode, talks about the size of the real economy in Hong Kong and the size of the banking economy in Hong Kong, the financial services economy in Hong Kong. And it is vastly overweighted in uh, financial services and uh, underweighted in the real economy, the Main Street style economy. So uh, very, very interesting stuff. And our guest today is a returning guest, Chris Martinson. You've heard him on the show many times. Uh, and he has some interesting stuff. He is definitely more pessimistic than I am, <laughs> uh, maybe a little more cynical. And I hope that's a fair statement, Chris, uh, but I think it probably is. But he has some great points about, you know, the world in which we live and and the way it is structured and the way it's built and uh, how it is unsustainable in many ways. I, I guess The difference that I have uh, with this type of thinking is that I do think it's unsustainable. I do think it's uh, a smoke and mirrors economy. And this is all around the world. It's not just the U.S. It's not just Hong Kong. It's not just anything. It's just the whole world economy. It's all what the late Alvin Toffler, who was a futurist that I followed uh, since uh, way back uh, to the days when I was 24 years old, and I loved his work. Uh, He and his wife Heidi did some incredible work uh, in many books, Um, and I never got to have him on the show before he passed, but uh, he talked about something called the super symbolic economy, and that's the world in which we live. It's where we have this world of symbols and instruments and derivatives. There is some real stuff there, but it's many times detached from the fake stuff, the derivatives, the instruments, the financial innovation, the super symbolic economy. It's just interesting. And remember, I've made that comparison for you before about the Great Recession. You know, most people consider the Great Recession, the real seminal date for the Great Recession was just over 10 years ago. And it was the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. You know, this company was maybe what, I think 156 years old or something like that, and it collapsed. It was obviously a a giant company with tentacles all over planet Earth, and you look at the world the day before the Great Recession began, whatever you believe that to be. Maybe it's the collapse of Lehman Brothers, maybe maybe some other date, but uh, let's call it that date or, you know, whatever date it was, right? There was a date before the Great Recession started, and there was a date after the great recession started and you know if you looked around at the real economy nothing really changed there was the same amount of gold on earth the same amount of oil the same amount of real estate the same you know number of widgets that every company on earth was making nothing in the real economy really changed but lots of stuff changed in the super symbolic economy the smoke-and-mirrors economy, the Wall Street economy, the Main Street economy was pretty much the same. You know, you could count all the assets in the world the day before and the day after the Great Recession, and the assets were pretty much the same. Yeah, they changed hands, they changed labels, they changed symbols, but the real assets were pretty much the same. And so I guess my difference with the sort of the doom-and-gloom thinking is that i think that the super symbolic economy the smoke and mirrors economy maybe sadly can just go on for a long long time a lot of people are, have been predicting doom for decades and you know maybe go back to malthusian thinking for centuries but it just hasn't happened <laughs> so you know the question is how much longer can the world kick the can down the road and I think that's probably for a very, very long time. So we're in the game. We're part of the game. We're not going to change the game. It is what it is. And all we can do is play in the game. And my strategy, including many things, uh, risk evaluation, inflation-induced debt, destruction, etc., can help you win that game. And we've talked about that on many past episodes. But hey, without further ado... Let's get to our guest today, Chris Martinson, returning guest, really very knowledgeable person, and I think you'll enjoy this interview. And uh, tomorrow, we have a client case study, another client case study, talking about some amazing things he's done in real estate, starting with eight single-family homes he purchased through our network and uh, has ratcheted that up to many, many more units. Uh, So I think you'll like that case study coming to you tomorrow. And again, we're here five days a week for you. Uh, so uh, without further ado, let's hear from Chris. It's my pleasure. Welcome back, a returning guest, and that is Dr. Chris Martinson. He is co-founder of PeakProsperity.com, developer of the educational video series that I watched many years ago called The Crash Course and co-author of the book, Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. Chris, welcome back.
0: Thank you, Jason. It's really great to be back with you and all your listeners today.
1: Good to have you. Where are you located?
0: I am in western Massachusetts, a little town called Greenfield, right on I-91 that cuts through Connecticut up towards Vermont.
1: You know, in our virtual world, I always think it's kind of important to have a sense of geography. That's why I almost always ask my guests where they're located. So, Chris, the economy is doing crazy things. I know that you're talking about how the next 20 years will be completely different from the past. What do you mean by that?
0: Really, the larger sweep of the story that I've been telling for a while is that uh, humans is a species across the whole globe. This isn't an American centric story that, that we've grown kind of to the edges of our flask and This next period of time is about learning how to adjust to some really really big things including This idea that you can't grow infinitely forever in a finite space whatever your fixed volume is now ours is the world and We've got tons of data that says well, you know in terms of freshwater soil Insects species that we're kind of at the edge of what we can take And as well, most of us eat fossil fuels. That's just how we live unless we live an agrarian lifestyle somewhere in Africa. So we're coming up on a very big phase transition in how humans are going to need to organize ourselves in very new ways.
1: It's kind of a weird thing if you really think about it, that the economy of the globe, like all economies are based on this concept of you got to keep growing, you got to keep growing. And growth creates a whole bunch of what they call externalities, doesn't it? And those externalities are the things you just address, whether it be species extinction, pollution, whatever. But Chris, what else can you do? I mean, people just kind of demand that, you know, we have growth, that things get better. Does progress always or now, maybe you want to dissect those two words, progress versus growth. Maybe they're not the same thing. A lot of economists would say they are, but does it always involve the externalities that we've had in the past or or can it be done differently?
0: Well, this is a great thing to dissect because it, it really does need to be pulled apart. And so let's take needs and wants. Let's separate those for a second. You and I, we would want more progress, right? We don't need it, but I would want it, right? I would love the next biotech revolutions to come along. I'm really excited by some of the technological progress we're making. I think we can do things a lot better. I want all of that stuff. If it doesn't happen, it's not really terminal to this condition. So we want the progress. The need in this story, though, comes from our monetary system. It needs to keep growing. It's like a shark, the proverbial shark that's either swimming or it's dying.
1: Mm -hmm. Right? So it
0: has to keep moving. and So our financial system requires this constant growth. And it would take a lot, um, you know, and the Crash Course does this, you have to peel back and understand how it's constructed and how money is created and how, you know, all this stuff. But, you know, if we can just hold that on faith as an article of faith, people can go to the Crash Course or other means and and figure out if this is true.
1: My listeners understand because we've talked about it, you know, ad nauseum that, that money is lent into existence. You know, the concept of fractional reserve banking and all of the, you know, it's just a big giant scam, frankly, but it is what it is. We're not going to change it or, you know, so I just kind of give in and I say, hey, align your interests with the powers that be, right? Well, that's good. Well, you know, that's kind of fatalistic, I guess, but (laughs) it's good to understand it. So we have this system we have now, and it's in some ways toxic, uh, you would say, I guess, right? So what do we do?
0: First thing is, it's kind of like when uh, if you've ever been to AA or, or similar program, or I have ever, not, but I'm familiar you, with it. <laughs> if you've ever if you've ever been in a in a serious uh, life changing moment, there's two ways humans change. Psychologists know this very well. We change through insight, all right? So we got some critical insight. We listened to a Tim Ferriss podcast. We're like, oh my gosh, and we changed ourselves in some important way or listened to Jason Hartman, right? And we go, oh, with that insight, I will change. That's wonderful, also rare. The more common way humans change is by pain. We run up into some intolerable condition and go, oh, fine, and we change ourselves or the situation. So in this story, not enough people really understand the nature of both the problems. I'm using these words very carefully, both the problems we face and the predicaments we face with the differentiation between those being problems have solutions, predicaments just have outcomes. You have to manage them as best you can.
1: Right. Okay. So, you know, another way to say that would people change through inspiration or desperation, right? And right. Uh, I, I don't know if it was Jim Rohn or his copycat, Tony Robbins, who said that, but <laughs> it's, it's a good way to look at it. Uh, I so, like that. I so, have heard that. That's good. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same, the same thing you said, but what change needs to occur what is the change so yeah that's how we change but then what change would be
0: needed well we have to begin living within the limits that exist out there and so for a long time a number of years i was in corporate strategy right i wore the suit and helped corporations figure out how to do what they did better and and here's the essence of a strategy a lot of complex things you could learn at a big consulting house but every strategy boils down to this what's your vision? And how are you gonna get there right what's the plan what are the resources and so what we really need to do in this story is understand that our entire story has changed and we need to begin using things very wisely so here's a quick example I love the technology and I know a lot of people in the business who do extract shale oil from way down horribly complex amazing stuff what they can do with this drilling technology is astonishing but If you pull that stuff out of the ground so fast, all you're doing is flaring the associated gas into the night sky Mm -hmm. and using the the resulting oil so that you can sell a few more years of F-150 trucks. You're probably wasting your opportunity in this story. And so the oil in this story represents our resources. If we were going to do things differently, we would say, hey, there's not an infinite amount. There's some we use it for really critical things, what are we gonna use the remaining balance on? And if we come up with an idea that says, oh, we have to use half of it to build a new future and we'll use half to sell more F-150 trucks, fine. But we don't even have that articulation of that larger master plan and that's what people are starting to detect. You know, you wanna talk about this idea of uh, where's the culture going, the social pressures we're feeling that are building, whether it's the yellow vest or Trump getting elected or the Catalonia breakaway or Brexit. These are all things that can be understood once you back up and see where we really are in terms of the larger resource story, which, by the way, spoiler alert, we can't grow the pie like we used to because the really easy-to-get resources are all gone. Hey, we're getting after this deeper, harder, more dilute stuff, fine, but it's more expensive. It just means the pie can't grow like it used to but every authority monetary fiscal is trying to push that car you know so that it can go the same speed that it used to go and it can't so this huge challenges and opportunities
1: yeah yeah okay so before you go on let me play devil's advocate with a couple of things you said I'll just rattle a few things off and you can address whatever you want or all of them. So didn't they kind of disprove the peak oil theory from the 70s? Haven't people always thought, hey, there's this kind of, you know, Malthusian thing, and then some technology comes along to solve the problem later, uh, which you, you address shale. And, you know, we can talk about fracking and stuff like that. I get there's dangers and costs and so forth. And you look at the cost of, you know, just a gallon of gasoline. And I mean, adjusted for inflation at least at the moment, gasoline is quite cheap. You know, my friend uh, just posted on Facebook that she went to Costco and got gas for $1.80 a gallon. Now, if you adjust that back to infl- for inflation, that's cheaper than it was a lot of times in the 80s and maybe even the late 70s. It's kind of amazing. You know, America's an energy exporter now. And of course, we're not talking just about the US. We're talking about the whole planet. But, you know, is there some room for... Any debate on some of those issues?
0: Well, it's a very complex area. I don't know if we have time to get into all of it, but I totally get where you're coming from. And if we could just peel the covers back just a little bit here. have you've taken a flight where you've flown over a shale basin and you look out the window i'm sure a lot of your listeners have and you see that checkerboard quilt like like there's mm-hmm. like these one to two acre drill pads just scraped with uh monotonous precision it, checkerboard it, precision. It, it,
1: it doesn't look good i'll, I'll agree well, with of, was, a lot of the and, stuff people are doing to the you know the rainforest or whatever it you know you look at that from above and you're thinking wow this is a Cost, well, okay, costly let, let, uh, consumption,
0: right? The scraped areas will grow back if yeah. necessary But here's the point I want to make around okay. that once upon a time when we were first in the golden era of oil discovery And they're discovering the Gowar field in Saudi Arabia or the spindle top in Texas Those things are down about maybe a thousand feet roughly mm-hmm. and they stuck a straw down and then that straw would start producing Three or four thousand barrels a day and some of those straws put there in the 30s 40s and 50s are still producing Three to 4,000 barrels per day per well. It's amazing. Now let's look at one of those little checkerboard pieces. Let's say we're in the Bakken and this amazing company parks this big giant rig on there. They drill down 10,000 feet, they slant it sideways and they go sideways another 10,000 feet. Then they do a 100 stage frack, maybe. I'm using extreme examples. They might throw 15 to 20 million pounds of sand down that hole, millions of barrels of water. It's just astonishing, right? Mm-hmm. And they do that, and that well starts flowing maximally at 1,000 barrels a day to start, and then it's lost 85% of that in just three years, and it's producing maybe 40 barrels a day Mm -hmm. in three years. So think of the energy it took to drill – 20,000 feet and do all that other stuff and what we got back out of that because what matters in this story is what we get back From energy exploration because that's what you and I live on That's what everybody listening to this lives on unless they're in the energy business directly So when we look at this story, we can clearly say we went through the easy stuff, which was like a buck a barrel Now I know the harder stuff, which is like $50 a barrel And now we're drilling into the source rocks. There's no pre-source rocks, right? We're we're all the way down to the shale itself. And it will last for a while. But many of the shale basins that got drilled 15 years ago are already past peak. And it's a quick flash in the pan. It's great stuff. I'm not saying don't do it. But to think it's going to last like the old stuff did from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, it's just a totally different beast. Are we
1: moving to alternative energy? Is that, I mean, you know, we always hear and read about it, but it's not really anything real like wind and solar and geo. It's a drop in the bucket, right?
0: Well, it really is. Hydro is wonderful. They call it renewable, but we basically dammed up most of the spots that are are suitable. There'll there'll be a few others, but we're not going to triple it from here, for example. And geo, who knows? Maybe geothermal has got more to it. Fingers crossed. Let's hope. But the wind and the solar story increasingly, we're understanding now that A, those aren't replacements for liquid fuels, right? You can't, nobody runs jumbo jets on electricity yet. Nobody drives, you know, a giant container ship across the ocean with electricity yet. And I'm not sure that we will without some amazing breakthrough in battery technology. It's been fingers crossed there, right? But what we found is that at current rates to really replace our energy infrastructure at current rates of adoption, and people are all excited like, oh, but Chris, you know, 50% growth rates per year, wind and solar, wonderful. But at that rate, It'll still take 400 years to replace our energy infrastructure. We don't have 400 years in this story. Mm -hmm. Every model I've looked at says that global output of fossil fuels has a peak at some point. It just does. And we'll drill into, you know, source rocks and maybe we'll find a way to harvest, you know, vacuum up the clathrates, the methane clathrates off. Who knows? But there isn't the easy cheap stuff. It's now more expensive. This alone helps us understand why global economic growth rates have been subpar for the past 15 years the pie just doesn't grow like it used to it's easier to grow pie with dollar a barrel saudi oil that comes out as much as you want right now it's a little harder that puts some sand in the transmission the next stage of this story though so when you started with why the next 20 years right well this next 10 years we're gonna see a lot of changes because all those old legacy fields are depleting very rapidly and we're gonna have to see the world turn in an enormous way towards shale, and we're going to drill that. But again, if we do that without a clear understanding of why and how we're using that energy to build out a new future, hey, it might be exciting. It might be profitable for a while, but it doesn't give us that sense of belonging to a story where we can follow the plot line and say, I get it. I see where we're going. And I think young people today are increasingly starting to lose the plot line in this story.
1: Now, why are they losing the plot line? And and when you say that, just Explain that a little more, if you
0: would. Well, there's a really important piece of work that, that's come out. You know, now they say that young people now have about a fifty percent chance of experiencing something called depression mm-hmm. by the time uh, they've reached the age of thirty. Now fifty mm-hmm. percent, that's off the charts level. The problem is is that once they peel that back a little bit, they said, Oh no, this isn't depression. Depression's either situational, meaning, you know, you lost your job, your yeah. dad died, something sure. happened, or it's yeah. chemical, and we can give a some sort of a chemical treatment to that. Yeah, be careful of be that.
1: To... That That's a whole nother conspiracy it theory is. I have. Well, but, yeah. well
0: for a yeah. while, it can help boost you out. But if you're on long term, oh, I'm terrible. not a believer in yeah. that it just doesn't work out. Pharmaceutical drugs,
1: I just say stay away from them unless absolutely, absolutely
0: necessary. Absolutely. But what they're finding is that of these things where they're de- marking these kids down as depressed, they're finding it's not You can't talk them out of it. You can't drug them out of it. And so they realize there's a different word at play, and that's demoralized, Mm -hmm. right? And so what happens, you know, as opposed to a depressive disorder, demoralization happens. It's really an existential breakdown. It's what happens when your cognitive map just doesn't match up with reality anymore. So this past week, uh, before we recorded this in Europe, tens of thousands of students, they did a school strike and marched. And they were doing it around climate change and, and their beliefs that climate change offers them no future, right? And so that's an example of what happens. That Their prime message, Jason, was why should I study if the world's just going up in flames? Like that's their cognitive map says I'm being asked to participate in a system and become a good – Students so I can get a good job so I can participate in a system that I hope I'm trying to hold this other belief that says That system is destroying the planet and they can't reconcile those two things So out they go marching right and I'm not here to either say anything about whether they've got the right message or the right cognitive maps But so many young people are reporting that demoralized sense of saying I don't have a sense of meaning or purpose and fundamentally the consumer culture that we've grown up in it's kind of meaningless right you know it leads to a lot of people you know we just this past week also saw the data that said people were either drinking or drugging themselves to death or committing suicide directly oh, yeah. at it's, the it's highest normal. rates ever yeah
1: yeah right
0: yeah. so that's that comes out of that demoralization again so that all sounds like problem definition chris where are you going with this to me there's also that's the fuel as well because again if people are either going to change from pain or insight that pain is here And the question is, great, what are we going to do with that? And I think this is where particularly young people are coming together and saying, hey, can we imagine a different, better future for ourselves? And the answer is, of course we can, (laughs) right? We can always do that. But we're starting to feel it's a very complex story where, you know, because of how the central banks did what they did, they created this enormously unfair wealth gap. Because oil is no longer as cheap, it's still abundant, but not as cheap as it used to be. It's 50, 60 a barrel, not 20 anymore. Because of that, we're starting to experience, you know economic growth just get a little laggy on us. And oh, but now we've got 250 trillion of debts outstanding in the world. And that's creating its own pressures. And you know, more people with student debt, all these things are pressures that come together and they're synthesizing into this next 10year window, and it's going to create huge social upheavals already started. Uh, that's what the yellow vest protests are about. It's going to create enormous political whipsaws, which is going to be very hard to plan for. Like, how would you go from Trump to Bernie Sanders if that's the next switch, if that's how it, or, it plays or,
1: out? Or Obama to Trump.
0: Or Obama yeah, to Trump. I that's mean, a yeah. sort of political whiplash that is a business person, very hard to plan for. And it creates cultural upheavals as well. And a lot of these are reactions to the stimuli that are coming. And my work is about helping people back up enough so that you can see what the stimulus is so that you can choose how to respond rather than react to the situations. Because if you're in reactive mode, you're going to get worn out. You're going to get burnout. You're going to get demoralized. And that doesn't have to be the case. But if we can see what's happening and understand it, and it's not personal and we can abstract ourselves, I think we have a better chance to position ourselves personally, professionally for what's coming.
1: Okay. You've alluded to the culture war a few times uh, just here in the last few minutes. Take us into that a little more. And I call it the culture war. Maybe it's more accurately called cultural decay. I just am not optimistic about the sort of the the ethos of Gen Y and and Gen Z. Uh, Maybe. I don't know Gen Z well enough yet. Nobody does. But These are the most catered to generations in human history. You know, certainly there's a lot of talent and a lot of ambition in those generations. But by and large, there's a lot of apathy, too. And you've alluded to it. I mean, just now, you know, it's like this sense of, you know, what's the direction? What's the point? And a lot of it is, you know, when you grow up looking at a, a small screen and you're worried about what everybody thinks of you all the time on social media. Of course, that impacts everybody, not just them. But they're, they're really, you know, it's like their life. You know, there's this sort of like connection, but disconnection at the same time. It, it's hard to wrap one's head around it. In England, they've appointed a, uh, like a, a minister just to address loneliness issues. These are, yeah. you know, major social problems. People are so isolated nowadays, but yet they're connected at the same time. So how do we reconcile this?
0: Well, gosh, a lot of a lot of uh, very interesting directions to go with all of that. You know, it was recently I was watching a a former Facebook executive come out and say, oh, my God, this stuff is absolutely horrible. This this product we created and I won't let my own kids use it. Right. And and that's because there's been this incredible explosion of knowledge about how our brains are wired and how we are as as organisms and and primates and what the dopamine pathways look like and what reward centers do. And, And gamers now who are game developers, you know, boot camp for game developers is all about the dopaminergic pathways and how to boost them and, and what's the right frequency and pacing of rewards and and scaling them and all of that stuff, right? So the game looks like fun to you, but somebody spent a lot of time figuring out how to map into your pathways. And by the way, you know, cocaine gives you a dopamine burst. So, so people are, we're going to discover, I think, just like GPS came out, right? Love the technology. I can't drive through Boston. I won't go anywhere without GPS. You know, if my GPS map goes off, I experience panic. You know, I love the technology. And it also allowed fishermen who used to sail out six hours or two days into the ocean, drop their net somewhere and and scour around for a bit to actually pick up six inches to the left of where they stopped last week. And because of that, fish stocks collapsed all over the world because the culture of fishing Wasn't ready for the technology and so I think a lot of what you're talking about here is we have these wonderful technologies I love my smartphone. I love all the apps. I love what it can do and we're starting to find out It's like every technology. It's two-edged sword, you know, we might say one edge is blunter than the other is sharper So we like it, but we're gonna discover and we are discovering that children raised in that environment of being constantly manipulated if you will through through the dopamine and other pathway experiences that they don't necessarily have the fortitude or the skill set for handling complex stuff, right? And by the way, even going down to your local town hall and trying to get involved in a decision to whether or not to, you know, raise fees on a parking garage is a complex sort of a decision that requires a lot of, you know, grit your teeth and fortitude. So, you know, I think there's a, a case to be made here to say that the kinds of challenges that we're about, that we're really starting to face are really hard, They're going to call for sacrifice. There's no immediate gratification to be seen anywhere. And then how are people going to react and vote as they carry forward into a world where there's a lot of really complex stuff? Guess what? We're going to fumble around for a bit in this story. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the future of the economy, inflationary Mm -hmm. or deflationary, what do you think? Next 10 years. Yes, yes to both.
0: (laughs) Here's yes. Here's why. Talk about, Uh, hey, listeners,
1: talk about Chris betting on red and black at the same time, right?
0: (laughs) Come on, you can't do that. You need to to get yourself a one-handed economist. So here's why I say yes to that. First, the deflationary forces are there. They're very potent. And if they were allowed to take their natural course, we would see a lot of deflation happen. So deflation meaning, let me define it. It's a destruction of the overall stock of money. And credit is money. So if you look at uh, where we are with auto loans, it's saturated market. Yeah, uh, student you know, P, loans, same thing. Student yeah. loans, like those, really and want thankfully to. Thankfully, this
1: time, not real estate loans, though. I don't think.
0: <laughs> no, well, with, so you know, watch your segments carefully. Commercial might have a different story to tell you than real estate in residential areas. But leaving that aside, we have a lot of debt in the system. It's just crammed to the gills, and so deflation is ready to take over. The central banks have no interest in deflation whatsoever. So they're going to keep pumping as hard as they can to see if they can create inflation. And so, you know, my prediction for the next, we're going to have another deflationary scare. We'll see the markets fall a bunch. We'll see, you know, things start to, maybe there's an institutional failure or maybe even a sovereign failure like Greece. We don't know, but it'll scare the central banks enough that they'll go to the next round. And that next round is not money for Wall Street. This has got to be money for Main Street. This is where I don't know people have been talking about the MMT theory, which is more just, you know, deficit spending. No, you know, give we've... me a
1: break. I mean, I mean modern monetary theory. You know, I had Mike Norman on the show and he was interesting. People love that episode. He actually hung up on me when I asked him a question. I mean, I just asked him a question, innocently. <laughs> you know. And, and, and then I had another MMT professor on last week from, I don't know, maybe it's Berkeley or something. I can't remember. You know, that just seems like a fantasy. Like, you can't just spend and create prosperity with spending. I mean, well, actually, maybe you can. We have been doing that. It's just artificial is all, but that's a minor detail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well... There's a lot of critiques about MMT. Too much to go into here. My fundamental critique is that I think they have it upside down and they believe that money money is the thing that creates the production. And so if we just had more money, then we could get production. It's exactly backwards as far as I'm concerned. Money is just this medium of exchange and production comes from real needs being met by real goods and services. The biggest critique I have of it is they just assume everything into existence. But leaving that aside, you know, you can always, the showstopper is show me one place in the world where MMT has been applied and been successful. So it's all academic theory right now. There is no example. Great point. I'm so
1: glad you said that because I would say the same thing for its derivatives of communism and socialism show me one point in history or place on earth where those systems have been successful. And then everybody's going to say, oh, Scandinavia. Not really. I've, you know, busted that myth a few times on the show, but again, too long to go into. So yeah, go ahead. But that's great. Great question. Yeah.
0: You know where this is all going to go, though, is so let's imagine, though, that you're part of the 99%. And let's imagine that your health insurance bills have been going up just your premiums. You're not even sick. They've been going up at, I don't know, five, eight, nine, ten, fifteen 10, 15%, Depending on the year and even when you try and use it it's just this horrible experience and you know It's just not good and all the neoclassical economists and all their Republicans and Democrats have managed to make their class The protected class very happy and healthy They've they've offshored all the jobs and you know capitals won this story and and labor's really lost out It's not a hard stretch to imagine that people weighing the balance saying well, we have this sort of crony capitalism it's not really working for me. And somebody's offering me this more socialist sounding stuff, but you know, free education and, and a much cheaper healthcare experience, that sounds better. I'll try that, right? The, I think people are are ready to try stuff. And I'm not saying I support it, I'm saying I understand it. Yeah. And that's the pressure that's coming forward because so few crumbs have been left at the table for the average person. So that, that's really the social pressure that's building up and that's why it's essential people understand the headwaters of the Nile in this story is that central banks cannot print up prosperity. They are redistributive organizations and they've been reverse Robin Hooding this for a while. They've been taking from the many to give to the few. And I understand why they thought they had to do that. It was a crisis, but the crisis should have lasted six, eight, maybe 12 months. They're 10 years into this. They don't know how to get out of it. And so they're a little trapped and stuck. And so they're going to keep printing. And that's why when you ask deflation, inflation, first deflation, enough to scare them. And then they start printing like crazy. And you are going to detect that as Uh, A One-time temporary tax cut no taxes owed this year. That's money straight in your pocket Maybe a refund for last year as well if they go further Maybe it's a check direct from the Treasury funded by the Federal Reserve We don't know but that's what money for Main Street looks like and once we get to that point That's where I tell my listeners. That's when you have to have your buy list ready You have to know where you're gonna invest because I want you to run not walk To those things and that includes real estate. This is the hard asset story, you know, the tangible real asset side of the story Once we get to that money for Main Street, you don't want to be holding the paper claims anymore You want to be holding the real assets and of course those as you know, those are harder you don't hit the easy button and buy a Bitcoin or a share of IBM, you got to run out and understand your markets and to have a team and know what's going on. And it just takes more work.
1: Yep, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, the hard assets are real things. They're real commodities that people need. They could be, you know, metals, they could be real estate, they could be, uh, you know, food and water and bullets mm-hmm. and ammunition. <laughs> I mean, you know, just real things. That's what it always comes back to. You know, you can play games with the, the Wall Street economy, all you want with financial engineering, with the central banking system. It's all just a big game of smoke and mirrors. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to real hard assets. That's what really
0: is there when the smoke clears, right? Absolutely. So you know if i'm right and we get this deflationary pulse first what's the best asset to hold well cash you know mm-hmm. it's cash is a legitimate position obviously keep your hard assets if you've got them if you have uh, positive cash flowing properties great Keep them. But otherwise, you know, this is a great time to sort of just get ready, get your buy list ready. You know, I live in New England. I'm pretty excited by, you know, where the price of woodland might go. And I like woodland for a lot of different reasons. I love what's possible in a lot of different real estate niches that are up and out there. And again, real estate isn't a single asset class. Obviously, it's a bunch of a bunch of little ones. But I love some of the stories that are coming in down there, residential assisted living, you know, or the collapse of, of the large brick and mortar retail stores, that's going to have a huge impact on patterns of where people live, work, eat, play. So these are all big trends. I, I love trend investing. I do believe in my heart of hearts that 2000 was a bubble. It was bad. It was ill-advised. It was stupid. We shouldn't have done it. It was a credit bubble. It was Greenspan trying to replace a business cycle with a credit cycle. It blew up and we should have said that didn't work. But they fished around and they got this guy, Bernanke, who said, "Ah, I know how to fix that. We just didn't do enough. So he went up and blew up a second bubble and we called that the housing bubble. But it was bigger than that. And that blew up and that should have been the learning. Instead, they tripled or quadrupled down depending on how you like to add stuff up and uh, went on a zero percent negative interest rate blowout extravaganza that was global. We got an everything bubble. And here's look, I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. Credit bubbles. Burst, and when they do, they're worse than business cycles. So the thing they were trying to save us from, they were placed with something worse. You know, we got rid of the cold, but we got cancer. It was just awful what they did.
1: Yeah, it's really something else. These are these are complex issues, and it's just very important that people study them and uh, really, really pay attention to all this stuff. Chris, give out your website.
0: Peakprosperity.com. And uh, we've got a lot of information there, a lot of it's public and free. And we also have a subscription newsletter for people who like to go a little deeper into these issues.
1: Fantastic. Well, Chris Martinson, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure.